Welcome to the 450th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Marla Peddle, Principal Advisor for School Safety and Resilience for Save the Children. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter, and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of March 4th, 2022, 5,988,000 people have died from COVID-19 worldwide. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline, an overlooked consequence of COVID-19, the hundreds of thousands of orphans left behind. This is a piece produced by Tanya Mosley and Allison Hagen aired January 13th, 2022 on WBUR, Boston. More than 167,000 kids in the United States have lost at least one parent or primary caregiver to COVID-19. Dr. Charles Nelson coined the term COVID orphans to describe children who have lost one or both parents or primary caregivers to the disease. One in four adult deaths to COVID-19 leaves a child orphaned or left without a caregiver, something the Harvard University professor of pediatrics and psychiatry describes as a hidden cost of the pandemic. Grief manifests itself differently in young children than it does in adults, he says. Grieving children experience anxiety and depression if they're old enough, he says, but also secondary effects like acting out in the classroom or stress caused by food insecurity or loss of health insurance. The stress can have both a psychological and biological impact on kids. When someone experiences stress, the brain produces stress hormones. Chronically elevated stress hormones can harm the brain and heighten the risk of physical and psychological ailments, Nelson says. Children are grieving the loss of their parents, and if that grief is not recognized and it's not treated, he says, short-term effects can become long-term effects. After losing a parent, children feel like the world has been turned upside down. Kids need support and a feeling of safety from an adult who's there for them at all times, ideally a family member, but also perhaps a teacher, a clergy member, or a neighbor. What we need is a safety net that gets put into place immediately so that the child is really being protected by adults, Nelson says, and that needs to continue until the child seems to have gotten on the other side and started to resolve their grief. Dr. Nelson wants municipalities to pay attention to the issue of COVID orphans. Governments need to recognize the problem and then figure out who should be responsible for promptly meeting kids' needs like counseling or medication, for example, he says. Anytime a child cries out for help or shows any signs of needing help, the adult needs to be available, he said, because if too much time goes by and the child's needs are not attended to, that feeling of abandonment is just going to be overwhelming for that child. In Georgia, Cornelius and Melanie Daniel were already the parents of three young children when they adopted their two teenage cousins last summer. 
Within 24 hours, 18-year-old Miles Daniel and 15-year-old Marina Daniel lost their parents to COVID-19. Martin Daniel was 53 when he died and Trina Daniel was 49. Cornelius Daniel describes his uncle as a role model who inspired his love of science. A chemist, Martin Daniel would do experiments in the home. My uncle was a very inquisitive guy, very witty fella. He and I both and Melanie all graduated from Tuskegee University. Cornelius Daniel says he inspired us all. Martin Daniel died at home and shortly after his wife was taken to the hospital where she collapsed and was resuscitated, Trina Daniel died after she collapsed again and couldn't be resuscitated. At the time, the kids were quarantined at home with COVID-19. Miles turned 18 the Sunday after his parents passed away, and so it's been a long journey. Recently, they lost their grandmother as well. Within the same week of losing their grandmother, they had to celebrate their mother's birthday, Cornelius Daniel says. But with God's grace and a lot of family support, we've been able to sustain ourselves. Now the family takes it a day at a time, Melanie Daniel says. I've even said to Marina, some days when we can't take it a day at a time, we take it an hour at a time, Melanie Daniel says. And ensuring that there's positive reinforcement throughout the days, the months, and hopefully the years to come. The family wrote a letter to Georgia Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock asking about legislation to support families who have taken in the children of COVID-19 victims, education benefits, and mental health care, Cornelius Daniel says. He hasn't heard back about the letter yet, but plans to follow up. His family has the resources to support their cousins emotionally and financially, but many people don't. And he's concerned about what could happen to grieving kids who aren't offered the same help. This is bigger than us, Cornelius Daniel says. God has given us a bigger purpose, and we've stepped into that moment and walked into it with that focus, making sure these young people have the opportunities they need to move forward in life. Martin and Trina Daniel were not vaccinated at the time of their deaths. The couple was hesitant about the vaccine, but had finally scheduled their first doses when they got sick. Melanie Daniel says people need to take the precautions available to protect themselves. I know that everything happens for a reason. I have a strong spiritual belief, she says, but it does make me a stronger advocate for being vaccinated because without putting in the work, then our faith means nothing. The story was an overlooked consequence of COVID-19, the hundreds of thousands of orphans left behind. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Dr. Marla Peddle. Dr. Peddle is Save the Children's Principal Advisor for School Safety and Resilience. Her educational background is in social work and urban planning, and her research background is in education policy, full inclusion, public education for risk reduction and resilience, and earthquake epidemiology. She has 20 years of experience in advocacy and programming, community, and school risk reduction and resilience. Marla Peddle, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott. Well, let me start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. I'm calling from Southern California. Um, we uh, finally have masks off. And um, so normal life seems to be resuming, but of course, um, not without the kinds of impacts that you just um, read to us about and very um, 
relevant and apropos and a little a little difficult for me to follow. Um, yeah, let me try to get my composure back because, of course, yeah. um, you know, that times five million. How do you feel about the masks? I mean, just to stay with that for a second, it's not only you know, concern at a level of public health, maybe a sort of rational concern, but there's also just the the shift in life and somehow getting used to taking masks off. I'm in South Korea and that's not an issue. People wear them. Um, well, I have to say, you know, it, 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 on the one hand, walking into a public space without a mask, uh, the first time I did it, the sign on the door said, um, if you are fully vaccinated, you do not need to wear a mask in this place. And I thought to myself, yeah, right, okay. And exactly the people that are gonna take their masks off are those who are not fully vaccinated. So, you know, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna keep it on. And frankly, I think in a crowded venue, I, I would. Um, but <laughs> but I, we're all so tired. We're all, we also need to have a semblance of normality. So, you know, I mean, I, I guess personally, I no longer feel that this could kill me. I don't live with anybody who's highly vulnerable. I certainly am very aware that um, if I was going to be in the presence of anybody that was in a vulnerable category, maybe somebody who could not get vaccinated for any reason, um, then I, I would take a lot more responsibility for not even being in, in their presence, um, you know, unless I had a good 10 days of taking every measure possible. Right, right. Um, and, I, and I feel that that's gonna be part of the new normal, which I'm, I am um, concerned that we, we will now have um, a group of highly vulnerable people um, for whom we collectively really have to become conscious and, and supportive. I've been asking guests to share a personal memory of the pandemic time period. I'm, I wonder if that's okay for you. Could you maybe share sure. a memory of this time? Sure. Right before the pandemic started, um, we lost a colleague of ours in this field, uh, Professor Kevin Roman, um, who was a leader in child-centered risk reduction and from you know other causes. But Kevin is somebody that I would have always gone to and we would have had all the ongoing conversations, and I knew that I was going to miss him terribly, pandemic or not. And early on in the pandemic, um, I was fortunate to have find a mentor um, by the name of John Wary, who was mentoring people in, well, in, in Southern California, um, to step up to the plate to this very, um, you know, um, uncertain environment and um, figure out how they were gonna you know, make lemonade out of lemons. Um, in a way, just like you, Scott, I mean, you, you, know, you found this incredible, important purpose and just did it. And um, in my case, I just thought to myself, what would Kevin do? And um, so I put my hand up for um, a, to, to help launch um, one of a, a three or four dozen um, public health and social science working groups under the banner of Converge, um, um, run by um, the uh, University of, of Colorado um, Natural Hazard Center. And so we launched that um, working group to just try to scope what is going to be the public health and social science research going on 
in relationship to children, youth, and schools. And to start laying out our research agenda of what we think is going to be important to look at. And frankly, I think it's a research agenda that's going to keep us busy for the next decade. Um, and um, all of the experimental conditions are set up so that, um, you know, we can come back and look at what did and didn't work. Thanks for sharing those memories. And I'm sorry about the, the losses. And I, I just want to follow up on that briefly and to sort of ask you about the research community. People might not realize, you know, when we talk about disaster research, or when I talk about disaster research, I'm picturing a, a big tent, a, a vast collection of experts who come from academia, government, NGOs, the arts. Um, but in, and within that tent, of course, you're going to have clusters of people who are hyper-specialized and expert with long long track records in their field, like yourself. So I, I want to, could you say a little bit about that community of researchers who focus on children and, yeah, and how, sure. how the communication works? I'm sort of curious, uh -huh. like, are you all plugged in? Is it international? Is it mostly domestic? How do you communicate? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an excellent um, question. I would say it, we are a very young community of practice, very, very young. So um, I would say about 10 years or 15, well, we've, I think we've been working together, parallel, vaguely aware of each other for 15 years or so. Um, but brought into closer proximity by um, the Hyogo Framework for Action, the Sendai um, Disaster Risk Reduction um, priorities and so forth, and, and sometimes around those international or regional meetings and so on. Um, Kevin and I were fortunate that, you know, Save the Children um, had some research funding to really dive into child-centered risk reduction and school safety, and we managed to uh, sponsor about 10 modest research projects over a three-year period. Um, and that really helped to bring a lot of us together. But there's really been an exponential growth in the research outputs from this community. Um, you know, special issues and, and I would say just in the last five years, there's been at least half a dozen special issues of peer reviewed journals on issues of child centered risk reduction and school safety. So um, it's, we're trying to make the connections globally. Um, as you might imagine, nobody really funds us to do that. Uh, networking work. Right. Um, we don't have, what do we have? We have something called Safe Children, Safe Schools Community of Practice. You can Google that. Um, it's a community of practice that's hosted by UNDRR. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's not terribly active, but it is a way to reach um, several hundred uh, researchers and practitioners. The other way we've done it domestically, we've all, um, always been sort of a, a small subset within the um, the Natural Hazard Center July workshop events. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll often get together there. Um, you know, so it's fledgling. Um, it, when it, it comes up, it, it does come smack up against, um, you know, the competition between academic institutions and the, sure. you know, the necessities in academia to publish or perish, the, you know, all that jazz. Um, but the nice thing, I think, is that we come together around 
evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. So it really is, I would say, practitioners are becoming more conscious of being partners with researchers and they're thinking more about research questions that come out of their practice. And researchers are thinking more about partnering with practitioners to do something really valuable and relevant. So it's happening. There's a cultural shift happening. Well, thank you for describing the, the contours of the research community. And I, I, I want to ask a sort of follow-up about that, which is just I'm wondering um, why so recent? I mean, is it something that that children were always just assumed to be resilient and so we don't need to worry about studying children specifically in disaster? Are there specific events that have driven like Indian Ocean tsunami or Hurricane Katrina, other events that have maybe, or school shootings in the United States um, that have driven the, the focus and the concern about children? I'm sort of trying to place this in a, yeah, in yeah. a history a bit. We do. We've done some. We've done a little bit of history writing. I can't remember now where we where we wrote it, but um, I, re I remember very distinctly um, in my career about 15 years ago doing a role play with with colleagues, maybe 10 years ago, and we we assigned colleagues different roles. They one worked for Save the Children, one for Plan International, one for UNESCO, one for UNICEF, and one person was the Ministry of Education official who you know whose door we all knocked on. Yeah. And we actually physically demonstrated that we would we would show up at different times, knock on the door, want to talk about our tsunami project or our this project or that project. And everybody was just pulling in different directions. Hmm. And 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 the, our counterparts in education authorities were very polite and, and grateful and tried to say yes, yes to everything. But we were making them nuts. So about. Um, 10 years ago, we came up with the Comprehensive School Safety Framework. Mm -hmm. And it was adopted um, in 2012 by the Southeast Asia Ministers of Education Organization. And what we finally did is we got ourselves together. Without knowing it, we were fledgling implementers of a collective impact approach before it even had that name. Um, we said, look, guys, we are not getting anywhere pushing on these doors by ourselves. Let's see if we can get our act together and come up with one thing. And, you know, coming out of evidence-based practice, we said we really have to have an all-hazards approach. Now, honestly, at that time, all-hazards meant all natural hazards. And that was the era where we still talked about natural disasters, you know. So, um, hashtag no natural disasters for your audio. So, you know, at that time, well, anyway, since then, we've, we've evolved even further. Now, when we say all hazards, we mean all hazards of all sizes and all types, because we now understand that, first of all, there are conflict and violence hazards that children face every day in and on the way to school, peer violence, uh, adult on child violence, um, you know, civil unrest, attacks on schools, all of that, uh, gender-based violence, the full scope. But also the everyday hazards, the experience of some of those everyday hazards creates tremendous inequities. We started to, as we started to document these, what we saw is that, you know, the unnamed monsoon was keeping some children out of school for three weeks a year. Or, and if they had two monsoons, it was six weeks. So we started to see that there were hidden inequities building, that there were hidden impacts that our criteria for what we needed to be conscious of was not the major national, you know, the major disasters that called for international response. 
we needed to connect this across the whole continuum to the everyday impacts. So we, you know, we now we we will connect it to everything from road safety and wearing your seatbelt, right, you know, um, all the way to you know the the one that's going to topple the buildings. So, um, so I I think that for I think the change was um, came about because we were willing to um, drop our egos and our logos long enough. Um, to see that we had to to work together. And the comprehensive school safety framework took a very different approach as well, because what we did is we recognized, wait a second, school safety, this has a lot of different actors and stakeholders. You don't just like march in and start talking to school principals about school safety because they didn't build the building. They didn't select the site for the, for the school. Um, they don't have budget for maintenance. Um, so, you know, and they don't set curriculum. So that was only one place to go and talk to you know people about school safety. So this comprehensive school safety framework says, look, there's a policy and enabling environment, but there are three major sets of actors that overlap. One is around the safer school facilities, you know, the architects, the engineers, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the landowners, all of that. One is around school safety and educational continuity management. So those are the school administrators and and the policy level and so on. And then there's the um, teaching and learning. There's the people who develop curriculum and train teachers, and there's teachers and kids in the classroom and out of the classroom. And those three overlapping pillars, you know, all have to be activated in different ways. Hmm. So we got sophisticated. We have a framework. The framework seems to be working. We had more than 60 countries sign on uh, gradually over um, an initiative that UNDRR took uh, a few years back called the Worldwide Initiative for Safe Schools. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see results. Uh, thank you for discussing the that history. It's a really important one. And the people listening, the UNDRR, this is an office that comes out of the United Nations that focuses on disaster risk reduction and planning. And um, you mentioned the Hyogo framework. I mean, these are important gatherings of disaster risk reduction experts who put together sort of incremental plans and then um, updating those plans with input from around the world. So that's a sort of really important broader context that you've brought to us there. I want to follow up on one part of this. Let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Marla Peddle today about disasters and children. And I want to think about the schools part of this for a second, because that's that seems to be a really important locus of the, of the intervention here um, and of the research. Help me understand that. Is that, be, is that because the home is the, is the, is outside of the reach of the researcher. The home is is really a, a place more. It's it's for parents and children relationships. It's something where the state is more involved with child protective services, whereas the school is a is a place where you can actually do things, where you can actually shift policy. I'm trying to figure out the the importance of the focus on the school when it comes to children. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think 
for for those of us coming from child-centered organizations, so that's what I'm talking about. That's that was right. sort of the, the motivation for us to come together. We're all worried about children's rights and children's rights being realized across the domains that that they spend their lives in. And there's home and community, of course, and there's school. And school is a universal institution. So um, I would say it is not exclusively focused on schools, and often schools are the the hub and the conduit for reaching families and communities. So it, it often comes together. And in fact, in the Converge Working Group, we called it um, the Converge Working Group for Children, Youth, and Schools. So, you know, it, it, it all comes together. That makes sense. And I remember being in seventh grade and, and having a smoking uh, stop smoking pamphlets passed out. And of course, it, I wasn't smoking, but I was meant to take that home. I was a conduit. So children are not only the focus of your work, but children are a conduit more generally to, to households. Is that right? Absolutely. And some of our research over the last five years is really showing that children can have Im- significant impacts on uh, household and family safety. So when we come up with our family safety plan and introduce it at school and kids take it home for homework over the spring break, you know, what happens is that behavior in the household and local community starts to change. And interestingly enough, the thing that children put into motion, we see that adults resonates with adults and adults actually have a slightly more realistic picture about, you know, where they land in terms of, you know, risk identification and readiness and preparedness and so on. And apparently the adults continue to act upon um, the the family safety measures and and change behaviors that the kids have helped set into motion. Mm. Just like I helped get my dad to stop smoking because of the black lung that I saw at school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I got my grandmother to stop and for that exact reason. And, uh, I had forgotten that actually till just till just now till you said that. Um, let me stick. I'm going to talk about converge in a second. There's one more part of this I just want to talk about, think about philosophically, with you a little bit, which is about to use this term children's rights. And I've been thinking a lot about disaster justice lately, and sort of the the rights of people generally in the world, which then will have to be brokered through nations and states. But what rights do children have? in disaster or how do you how do you think about that i don't think we talk about that nearly enough when we talk about you know what sort of claims people can make for government assistance or for help from a charity or an ngo but usually i guess it's i don't hear children discussed in that context nearly enough yeah well we do have um, an international convention on the rights of the child and it does enumerate many many child rights but the child rights congregate around four basic areas. There's the right to safety and survival. We just want to make sure that they're alive and and well. Then there's the right to protection. That is, we recognize that children are more vulnerable human beings and could be victims in, in so many different ways because of their vulnerability, their the inherent vulnerability, you know, from not being able to to ambulate or speak or, you know, know what, know the world. Um, and then there's um, the right to development. And that's where education comes in. 
So we, you know, we, we need to nurture and allow children to develop to their fullest potential. And then the fourth set of rights are around participation. That is, we need to respect, listen to, engage, involve, and, and allow children to, to be part of the entire enterprise. So a good deal of research, it's really wonderful, shows us that um, all of children's capabilities as agents of change. So we do not want to just simply define children as vulnerable victims that just get carried along with it. Right. Nor do we want to do what was done in disasters as, as recently as, you know, you know, 20 years ago, which is get them out of the way. Quick, get them out of here. You know, I mean, okay, of course, there are good reasons to make sure they get to a safe place. But in fact, children and youth very much want to and need to be part of recovery. So we need to make sure that they can do that in a safe way as well. Um, but they they will be empowered if they're part of risk identification and risk reduction. You know, first they got to realize that, oh, traffic's dangerous. I better learn to cross the street. Let me make sure I can master that. Then I can, you know, that, then I can be, be safe. Um, but then we want them to also be able to um, know what to do if they if they see an accident, know how to help somebody get up off the ground if some if they fall down. I mean, it's a whole continuum um, of skills. But having said all that about rights, I just read a very powerful quote from somebody quoting a, um, a, an elder from, uh, from the Native American population and who says, you know, our elders taught us that more important than our rights were our obligations. Mm-hmm. So I think that as we as we promote children's rights, we should also promote, you know, the the obligations that we're talking about when we talk about participation. And, you know, we are now seeing look, the brains of young people are being, um, uh, you know, are being applied to solving social problems in ways that they never were before. Sure. You know, we, we've got to. A kid developing a advanced test to detect pancreatic cancer and another one figuring out how to chomp away at plastic waste in the ocean. And, you know, I mean, these things are now available through sort of technological innovation. And, and uh, so so all the yeah. more reason why we better recognize both their rights and um, and their ability to participate. Uh, thank you for that. And it's. Um... I think about people may have forgotten this a little bit, but it was just before the pandemic broke out that you had the the global move led by young people around the world to address the climate crisis. And um, that was profound. And it cut through, I think, in a way that to, to hear the voice of young people framing the disaster of their lifetime. Um, it goes beyond just saying, well, they have the right to some sort of safety, which has been abrogated with climate change, frankly. But then also, I really like your sort of notion here that also let's talk about their their obligation in, in society to make change. And um, uh, with a teenager here at home, I can tell you that uh, they have no problem developing ideas about how to make the world better. Indeed. Let me just quickly remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Marla Pedal today. Let's talk about Converge. And so you jumped into action here. We were talking at the top of the discussion, um, coordinating 
the research effort in response to COVID. And this comes out of the Converge project, which is sponsored by the University of Colorado's Natural Hazard Center. It gives me a chance to name check one of my great heroes, Lori Peak. And I actually had Kathleen Tierney on the program last week. So this is a hazard center is always close to my, to my mind. Um, how did the group come together and talk about the research um, you know, agenda for this or for this. Group. Sure, sure. Yeah, coordinating research is was way beyond our our remit. But um, but what we were doing was just trying to track the research that was beginning to be underway quickly. And a lot there was a lot. Um, Scott, you got a link, a couple of links, and you can show people um, what the Converge Working Groups page looks like. The first link and the second link takes you to the children, youth, and schools. So. What we did is we um, we polled our you know global community and we asked them to identify um, priority areas of research around children, youth, and schools. What they thought was important, as well as what they themselves were engaged in doing. So, um, and and we came up with sort of ten big buckets, and they are large. Um, and and. Now that I think about it, I'm not sure. I'm, I was thinking about where do the orphans fit in there. But anyway, we came up with innovations in educational continuity and teaching and learning. So, and there's loads and loads coming out now on that. Student, family, and teacher well-being, which in some respects are three different things: students, families, and teachers. Um, there's educational impacts, learning acceleration, and measurement. We don't even know how to measure. What's going on? I mean, when school is open, school is open and it's open for 120 days a year or, you know, whatever's the normative number of school days. But how do we count that? How do we measure that when school is remote and it's for, you know, two hours or three hours or five hours or who knows? Um, then there's education sector governance and school safety management. How are folks managing? They're, you know, if you take a look at this globally, there's everything from school is out and nothing is happening to school is in and we're fulfilling and delivering the curriculum one way or another and everything in between. Um, there's the economic impacts of school disruption and resource allocation. Um, you know, in many places, schools are paid to deliver education based on the number of children who show up in their seats in the morning. So what happens there? Right. Um, there's the issue of safer school facilities. So. Every, you know, there's there's water and sanitation. We can't be safe from COVID if we don't have water and sanitation facilities. There's the importance of nutrition in schools. Schools all of a sudden realize that even if we can't deliver education, these kids rely on us for breakfast or lunch or both. Right, right. So, you know, there were, there were places where schools could step up and did figure out how to step up to the plate and continue and places where they didn't. Um, then there's family safety and resilience and risk perception, risk reduction and resilience. There's participatory research with children and youth, wherever that may take us, their priorities. There's inclusion and equity issues around gender, race, social class, disability, immigrant status, and all kinds of other intersectional considerations. And finally, there's child protection and social protection that also gets disrupted when schools are closed. Right. So, <laughs> now, from that huge agenda, we happened to have a group of graduate students from American University who wanted to help us out on, on this. And the, the piece of it that they bit off was 
looking at the emerging research on um, COVID-19 and student well-being. Just that nice little piece. Mm -hmm. And they did a magnificent job. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, just, you know, they really helped us to sort of see a light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, because what they did is first they start off by looking at a conceptualization of well-being that helped. Um, and then they went into um, just parsing what are the impacts on children, individual impacts, family and household impacts, educational impacts and equity concerns. They found some positive impacts. Um, and then they went on to give us some early findings and recommendations for practitioners. Bless their hearts. School recommendations, family and community recommendations, policy recommendations, and uh, programming recommendations, and finally, future research opportunities. Now, they did all of that from you know day one through October 2021. Interestingly, you know, from your obit at the beginning, yeah. is that the the data on um, COVID orphans have not yet really emerged, and right. so already I would have to go back. We're gonna have to right. you know fill that gap. Um, see where it fits in. Um, and, and the picture will continue to change, but at least we've got a snapshot. There's so many. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty impressive list. Im impressive in the sense of impressive that you're able to coordinate and collect and track across those many different domains, but also just impressive when you think about the scale of impact of this disaster on, on children. And the fact that you can come up with 10 different categories of impact is chilling to me. And, and I guess I, I wanted to ask you, maybe just draw you out a little bit on, in those different areas that you've been looking at. Um, what are the ones that you, you have greatest concern about, particularly on the issue of, of maybe younger children going through this pandemic and, and how it might impact them over sort of life course? Um. Honestly, Scott, I think it's really early to 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 put a finger on that. Hmm. I mean, for me, anyway. You yeah, know, sure. what, this is going to require a lot of longitudinal research, and I think the overwhelming thing is that as as terribly important as all of this research is. We and, and, you know, for me, you know, I, I've been talking about educational continuity for 20 years and nobody understood what I was talking about or why it was important. So, okay. hi, world. Now, every teacher, <laughs> child and parent understands the term educational continuity. Absolutely. And it's salient. But I don't want people to forget that everything we're talking about applies to all hazards. Hmm. And so next week, it could be, you know, an earthquake and a tsunami or an asteroid impact, you know, I mean, we, so we really need to not be obsessive about pandemic qua pandemic, but more about this is, you know, the mother of all disaster impacts that will allow us to learn a huge amount over a period of time. But that means we've got to invest a lot in this research. So, I mean, you know, thank goodness to you for investing in this, um, you know, series and just getting it down and just, you know, capturing the data of the moment. 
because that I think is, you know, that all we're doing right now is just taking a snapshot in time. And we, by the way, we did do a little project called Pandemic Diaries, where we, we tried, you know, there were a variety of pandemic diaries going on and people capturing data from adults, but we wanted to make sure that we were doing that with children and youth as well. So, you know, there, there were, were, there were several efforts and we've tried to um, filter all that stuff towards the Innocenti uh, project mm. under UNICEF, um, where they seem to be creating a library of this that will be there for future researchers. That's fantastic. Have you had a chance to look at some of the, some of the output of that? I mean, when children reflect on their experience of the pandemic, are there, can you generalize about that? I, not yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wouldn't dare do. I, know. I keep asking you to do all this synthetic stuff. Yeah, we're, still in the middle of, we're still in the middle of this disaster. Well, we, you know, and 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 we we wouldn't be doing it responsibly if we didn't try to get a cross section and figure out how we were going to start generalizing. I don't, you know, no, no idea. You know, there there's one thread of of findings from previous disasters that says that that. When, particularly when these things have natural uh, origins, or particularly when everybody gets impacted, that we we do manage to find resilience in the whole thing. You know that we that we don't end up totally traumatized. Okay, and that the people who experience trauma are those for whom, first of all, those who had trauma to begin with. They came into the situation with pre-existing trauma. And then those who experience death and injury or death, injury and violence, you know, so if they, so if they, if they themselves experience death, injury, harm, hunger, homelessness, you know, all of those things, that layering is what begins to, you know, results in, in trauma. Um, you know, for the rest of us, we're, we're counting our blessings. Gee, we're alive. We made it through. Right. Lots of people didn't. Um, but that, you know, that's really different for those of us with a job versus those of us who lost a job. Yeah, there's something really powerful in the way you you talk about really needing to. Um, we have to look at the pandemic, but we have to also be thinking about the many different kinds of disasters that are going to be affecting that affect children and and will continue and and I think if you spend a minute thinking about it you know, think about just this pandemic what is the nature of the harm of the pandemic on a child it it could be contracting covid i mean i mean that's the thing people would worry about maybe first but then you don't have to move very far away from that to talk about you know just the wild disparity in how schools were able to adapt to distance learning and some big city districts like Philadelphia, that it took a while for them to, they just couldn't offer it because of problems of digital divide and low income households. And at the same time, you were talking, I mean, just earlier, you were talking about a lot of these schools are places where children get nutrition, they get safety in addition to education. And the school couldn't pivot to that. So, well, that's another kind of, that's another disaster. And then we have the bereavement, the stress of parents, loss of job, loss of a house. So, I think that must be a big part of your work in the explanation that you do when you talk about disasters and in children, that it's, I think you have to really spend some time unraveling what we're really talking about when we talk about the disaster. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's why I was so thrilled. And we will, we will have a research into action brief soon that the Global Alliance for Disaster Risk Reduction and Resilience in the Education Sector will be publishing as a result of the initial um, scoping. And there will be an annotated bibliography online. Um, we'd like it to be dynamic and have other researchers contribute, you know, and, and keep it live. Not quite sure the best platforms for that. Um, but you know, it's, it's going to evolve. Um, you know, our, our group from American University also thankfully uncovered some of the research that was done on SARS and Ebola. Mm. So it gave us a starting place. Whoops, don't forget, this wasn't the first pandemic. Right. You know, HIV had, had its, uh, you know, some literature, you know. So, um, but every once in a while, Scott, I stop and I think, but what if this pandemic had hit children worse than adults. But, uh, you know, one can hardly imagine. And I, I do remember at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah. the resistance that people felt towards closing schools. Right. But we haven't, I don't know if you've found or touched on the stories where a child was the conduit for the virus that killed the parent or the grandparent. Sure. How do people... How do people survive that? You know, that, you know, so, so putting children in that position was a terrible thing. You know, losing out on a year or two years of schooling is a terrible thing. I mean, I guess the thing is that what we, what we learned about this to be humble about it is that there was no right way and there was no way to know the right answers or the right thing to do or, you know, <laughs> but everybody stepped up to the plate and we've gotten better and better and better. We really have, you know, the digital divide is we are starting to tackle that, that thing, you know, um, um, you know, families are being family like the, like the obit that you read at the beginning, those young people will make it, they will be stronger. Um, it's a, um, and there's a constellation here too. I think it's, um, I, I had an opportunity to talk with really great um, activist, Robin Kogan, who is, active in leading school nurses, advocating for school nurses. So here you have another group that often is below the policy radar, but they are the interlocutors of children's health and well-being. And, you know, she takes a sort of community health perspective. I mean, again, it's sort of like there's the health of the school, which means everything, mental health, physical health, nutrition for a child. But then the school, again, the health of the school community becomes a way to think about and impact the health of the broader community. I, and I thought of that because of what you just said, and that this idea that somehow um, adults could be vaccinated and, and therefore everything will be fine with Omicron, but you have a population of children who are not vaccinated, as if the children don't go home to the same household with the adults, or they don't go to the corner store, or they don't you know, go to the soccer practice or whatever it is. I, I find that segmentation enormously frustrating. I, and you're the expert, so I'm not, I don't want to tell you your expertise to you, but how do you cope with that? These blind spots in society that often treat children as some sort of like separate population, not part of a household, a family, a community. You know, I mean, I, I suppose I think, I, I suppose I give everybody the benefit of the doubt, you know, which is that we've all got blind spots. Um, goodness knows we found them, many of them on this, on this journey. Um, I think everybody is well intended. They they want to do the right thing. I mean, 
But, you know, in, in normally in disaster recovery, schools are very, very important to be opened up immediately because mm -hmm. without that, the adults can't focus on the recovery work, the physical recovery work. You know, so so everybody in New Orleans after the hurricane understood that if you didn't open the school, nobody was going to come back to clean up the debris. You know, so so I think I think it's coming from places of good intentions. We certainly want children to get their education. Everybody is not equipped to keep kids at home. And what if the kids are coming home and they're latchkey and the parents are frontline workers? It's just that socially we were not set up to have, you know, let's say safe childcare facilities for frontline workers. I mean, cause you have to, we didn't know at the beginning, Scott, how to, what a bubble was, how to create a bubble or a pod right. or whatever, you know, and, and as you remember, well, in the United States, whatever guidance we might've gotten was thrown in a trash can rather than disseminated. So, <laughs> sure so then we got our hands tied, you know? So anyway, at some point in the next few years, hopefully, you know, all of this wisdom will find its way into popular culture. And Let me um, just do a quick reminder here. We're almost out of time in discussion with Marla Petal. Um, and you can find this work we've been talking about. If you go to the Converge website, Converge at the University of Colorado, and there's a working groups page there. And there you can find the work of the COVID-19 and children, youth in schools working group that we've been talking about here. But I don't want to miss this opportunity to ask you, since you also um, you're working with Save the Children. Um, so this thing that's happening in Ukraine, this war in the middle of a pandemic, and I mean we're seeing the images of children in in subway tunnels, children at the border. Um, how do you? So here we have this sort of compound disaster. I think the COVID part has been pushed to the side, unfortunately, because Ukraine has had a terrible run with the pandemic and they have a low vaccination rate. Uh, I don't know about their childhood vaccination rate, but I would guess it's low. But I, I don't speak out of turn. But um, so how do you, um, how are you following that? How are you thinking about that? How will a group like Save the Children actually intervene in a space like that? Can you? Well, I think we, we <laughs> say the children um, has has always had a strong um, humanitarian response presence, um, you know, both advocacy and and on the ground and you know, education in in, in emergencies and children education for children on the move and, and you know, um, but and and we've already in many countries we have already been coping with. Um, the layering of COVID with something else. So there was um, there was a a tsunami recently, a volcanic eruption in Tonga. There was um, an earthquake in the Philippines. There, was, you know. So we've uh, various other things in India. So we're we're fairly familiar with everybody's going to mask up. Our staff are always vaccinated, um, you know, and then we're going to help them you know, have, get access to all of those things. Um, and if there's enough, is the minute there's sufficient basic stability, we're going to figure out how to help resume education. Um, but it, again, it needs this, it just needs a tremendous amount of global social 
um, support, you know, and the rest of the time we are, we are frustrated and, and, and bereft and, you know, just wondering what else we can do. Yeah. Just a, a, a final little question for you. And it's kind of a, it's a question about po policy formation, but it, it has to be driven by research. And um, oftentimes it takes a disaster too often, it takes a disaster event that somehow is on the headlines to get into policymakers' mind to then have the funding stream. You were talking about the difficulty of funding stream for the kind of research that you do. Um, so I, I guess I just want to give you an opportunity here as we're closing out to kind of make the pitch um, to policymakers. What do they need to hear at this moment in COVID to see the value for funding um, research of many different types that would have an impact on the children in their, in their districts, in their states, in their countries? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think the first part of my pitch is really that anything that we can do on whether it looks like it's focused on the COVID research, but it really needs to um, recognize and be focused on an all hazards approach and the implications for other things. So I'm old enough to remember back to um, when we, we had this huge community of quote disaster researchers and then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden the flavor of the month was terrorism. And, yeah. and now we had the criminology community who, you know, came in and wanted to, you know, um, have their piece of the action. And, you know, and in this one, we now we have the, the health, you know, folks that want their piece of the action. Okay, great. That makes sense. But, but guys, if we take an all hazards approach, and particularly on the public health and social science research, it's going to apply across the board whether it's a pandemic or the next arc flood that is going to hit us in Southern California and just hit New South Wales in Australia, you know, so, right. um, it, so I just urge everybody to recognize and understand that when we are going to be researching COVID, we're not researching a past disaster, like, Oh, well that's over. So let's just, you know, maybe we don't have to worry about that. Can't we forget about it? No, we can't because everything we can possibly learn from this, huge global experiment, dare I call it that, you know, and certainly the response was an experiment because everybody did it a different way. <laughs> so the more we can learn from that, the better we can, um, can be develop our resilience to whatever is going to hit us next. And so I, I, I would say there, this is important for climate research for, you know, these are things are all linked. So I hope that we are not so siloed in our approach that we're like, oh no, we want to do climate or no, no, we want to do conflict or oh no, we want to do COVID. COVID, conflict and climate, they're all interrelated as well as all the natural hazards. Right. So um, you know, we're all in this together. Let me just remind folks, you've been listening to COVID calls and please do join me for my next COVID calls discussion for Early risers on the weekend, I'll be talking to architect Roberto Morris, who I've had on before, um, architect and urban planner in Chile. We'll be talking 6 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday morning. And I want to thank my guest today, Marla Petal, who is one of the leaders of the COVID-19 and Children, Youth and Schools 
working group with the Converge project, in addition to all of the other work that she does with Save the Children. means a lot that you took the time here today to talk about this work. I'm really impressed with what you've accomplished and, and uh, full steam ahead. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Marla, and thanks to everybody for tuning in. Stay healthy, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.